Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. Today I'm joined by Dr. Roger Browning, Dr. Graham Johnson, uh, and we will be discussing the basics of managing a patient with severe preeclampsia, um, what that is and what that entails clinically. So we'll just start off with firstly the definition of what preeclampsia is and just briefly discuss the hypertensive disorders of, of um, pregnancy. So what kind of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy do we, do we commonly see here? We commonly see preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. Yep, we see pre-existing or um, essential hypertension. Mm-hmm. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of the term. I'm struggling early yeah. on. Okay. There's, there's a every so often you see some other terms put out like gestational induced hypertension. Mm-hmm. Yep. And can you have preeclampsia if you have chronic hypertension? Yes. And you'd classify that as chronic hypertension with, with, pre-eclampsia. with severe preeclampsia. Mm. Um, so I suppose of note in defining these is that you can have chronic hypertension. Um, if you have chronic hypertension before pregnancy um, and you are hypertensive before 20 weeks, then that is chronic hypertension. It isn't gestational hypertension. If it's after 20 weeks and you didn't have any pre-existing hypertension, then that is then gestational hypertension. Um, and it's called preeclampsia essentially when you have organ involvement. So hypertension, systolic over 140, and organ involvement can include the, the usual proteinuria that we talk about, but it can also include any complication um, of preeclampsia, including lung involvement. So if you have APO, kidney involvement, liver involvement, um, that's when it's defined as preeclampsia. And severe preeclampsia is defined as over 160 systolic blood pressure. Um, so other hypertensive... Disorders in pregnancy would include, I suppose, HELP syndrome and, pre- and eclampsia is the other one as well. Correct. Yes. Um, so what sort of risk factors are there for developing preeclampsia? got a list here. Um, so I'm going to go the yeah, history yeah. of preeclampsia. Yeah. Yep. That is the <laughs> second <one>. highest <laughs> risk factor. So that, that, yep. that's actually a good technique for survivors. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so your odds of getting developing preeclampsia again are seven times if you have um, previous history of preeclampsia. Um, the other common ones are antiphospholipid syndrome or SLE. Um, if you've got pre-existing hypertension, chronic hypertension, renal disease, um, and diabetes as well. Um, certain ethnic groups. Yep. African American. Well, yep. African ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. Indian. Um, and also if you're a nullip um, and multiple pregnancy, yep. about three times higher risk. Um, what's, the, what's the most common risk factor? Is antiphospholipid antibodies SLE. Right. It's, it's no. almost ten times the... It's definitely for re- chronic renal disease as well, mm. is a risk mm. factor, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so these patients are the ones that you'll commonly see on um, aspirin prophylaxis, basically. Um mm. So what are the issues in providing anaesthesia to these patients? So um, I'll start with a, a Viva scenario, if that's all right, and then we'll yep, just develop a discussion from that. So uh, we've got a 31-year-old Nullip who is a 28-weeker, and she's been booked for now a non-elective caesarean section. She, her blood, blood pressure is markedly elevated at 195 on 122, and her laboratory investigations reveal abnormal LFTs and thrombocytopenia. Um, so what are your initial considerations in this case? This woman's very sick mm. 
and this woman's uh, preterm. Uh, her blood pressure is concerning and will require treatment. Her uh, delivery should occur in the appropriate uh, institution. Her blood counts and blood um, test abnormalities make me worried and uh, make me um, want to make sure I have appropriate blood products in uh, the hospital to care for the patient in the peripartum period. Right, so you've mentioned that blood pressure is worryingly high. What are you worried about? I'm worried that um, it'll be associated with some uh, morbidities, for example, intracranial hemorrhage, heart failure, uh, other sources of um, bleeding, including liver uh, rupture, splenic artery, um, aneurysm rupture, for example. Mm. So what... what blood pressure are you going to defend? How low are you going to so lower her blood pressure? So, so the, um, the usual target would be below 160 uh, systolic and around 100 diastolic. There's still a need for placental perfusion for the new, uh, for the fetus, so that's probably what I'd target okay. as I started caring for her. Yeah, I agree. So you don't want to drop the blood pressure too low. Because um, you can get hypoperfusion of the fetus, but also the mother, I've seen that happen as well, where you've had ECG problems, where the hydralazine is kicked in. So, if um, delivering the placenta is the cure for this, should we just crack on and do that, or uh, in a safe way? Um, when you say crack on, I think it's something that needs to be done as a priority, but it needs to be done in the context of uh, the whole care of the patient and her and her fetus newborn. Okay. Yeah, so usually there's a period of stabilisation. Mm-hmm. So the immediate thing is to avoid any sort of immediate life-threatening things like eclamptic seizures and uh, intracerebral haemorrhages, and etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have to do like a code blue caesarean. You've, you've got to stabilise the mother before you move on. So w- what are you going to give then for the blood pressure? Well, if you just do the spinal, that will lower the blood pressure, won't it? So you, would you just crack on and do that? Or? Well, so we don't know for a caesarean, are they? I missed that. Yep, non-elective Caesar. Okay. In your anaesthetic bay. Yeah, well, we don't know what her platelet count is on this um, description. Therefore, I'd want to know those numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if she was not suitable for a regional anaesthetic technique, which might be the case, then I'd want to have her blood pressure um, lower before uh, embarking upon a GA caesarean section. Yeah, so I guess we sh- maybe we should describe um, how we would do both things, a spinal and or, or a regional and or a um, general anaesthetic. Yeah, perfect. Mm. So let's say she was suitable for a regional. Well, firstly, what platelets would you not be happy to do a, perform any neuroaxial procedure? Um, well, I'd, I'd like a platelet count of over 80, but um, if the platelet count was lower, then I may... To a regional providing other aspects of a clotting are normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And the risks of uh, a GA, especially of um, you know, laryngoscopy and hypertensive crisis, are pretty high. So um, there's plenty of people out there who would who would accept you know platelet counts down to things like you know 40 or 50 even mm-hmm. if you're just doing a, a straightforward single shot spinal. And often, if the platelets are that low, you'll give some platelets prior to the section, the caesarean, mm-hmm. therefore um, give the platelets before you do the spinal. Yeah, okay. I'd certainly be reluctant to 
do a technique that involves putting an epidural catheter in if the platelets are less than 80. Mm. Um, but single shot spine was probably what most practitioners would do. If the did you say it was platelet count was fifty four? Can be, yeah, sure. Yeah, I can't remember. Did, no, you I didn't, didn't say that. You didn't say a number. Yeah. Okay, if it was say fifty or sixty, that's mm. probably what I'd do because that's a significantly high blood pressure. I'd be worried about. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you're worried about platelets continuing to drop further. So if you're going to put an yeah. epidural in, then you'll that's be right. worried. In fact, there'll be less when you're removing the epidural. Um. <clears throat> I would probably use an arterial line. That's, a, that's just personal preference. Mm-hmm. I just think it's nice to know about sudden changes because when you do a spinal, obviously the blood pressure can... Yeah. In my experience with these patients, the blood pressure doesn't usually move because they're severely sort of hypertensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it did drop suddenly, you'd want to know You'd want to know quickly. Mm. You? So uh, it's pretty... Depending on who you are and how, how happy you are putting in arterial lines... Um, I think they're useful and I'm happy to put them in with the ultrasounds. pretty straightforward mm-hmm. and gives you a lot of safety to manage the hemodynamics. I find them really helpful, particularly as you administer intravenous drugs as treatment of the hypertension. Yeah, that's right. So I would have probably hold off on the intravenous drugs even while it's at 190 over 110 mm-hmm. because I know that when I do the spinal, it's going to drop. Mm. Uh, and you know we're just trying to get them in, the, in a safe region. We're not trying to over... Um, over-treat and end up hypotensive, which I have done before. So mm-hmm. I've ended up having to give vasopressors. Okay, so let's say yeah, the platelets are 100 and you have performed your spinal. Um, are you going to co-fluid load them like you would normally? And are you going to start the phenylephrine like you would normally? That's a bit of a loaded question. Yeah, not, in, <laughs> not probably not in this patient. Uh, be very, very careful with the fluids that I give her and... Uh, be very, very careful with the administration of uh, phenylephrine. Yes. So I that's probably, why the outline is very helpful. Yeah, I would probably use some clonidine in my uh, intrathecal do- um, regimen. I find that it helps with pain relief afterwards, but it also, you know, the, the downside to clonidine is um, hypotension mainly, which is not an issue because we're going to try to treat her hypertension. Um, and I would probably start the phenylephrine usually it starts at 30 mils an hour probably start at five mils an hour just so that it sort of flushes the line and yeah. then if if she does dump her blood pressure i'd be able to give her something mm-hmm. but you know we'll just make sure the drip is running so just dripping very slowly so i know that whatever drugs i'm administering are going to get into her but i would not give her lots of fluid okay good okay let's say the blood pressure doesn't budge you've done your spinal what sort of um would you, you know, what's your personal preference for first line for treating the acute, severe hypertensive crisis? I mean, usually it's easier in most workplaces to find hydralazine, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the medicine I often use first. Yep. Uh, intravenously. Next is in 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 this obstetric uh, anaesthetic setting is labetalol intravenously. Again. Um, so I usually start with small doses and treat to effect. Yep, so when you say small doses, what, what would you actually give? Yeah, I usually give <coughs> 20 milligrams. Of the first, yep. Yeah, of yeah. libidolol is the first dose, mm-hmm. and hydralazine I'm usually pretty careful with and give 5 to 10 milligrams as the first dose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually give 5 milligrams of hydralazine at a time, and it takes about 10, 10 to 20 minutes to mm-hmm. kick in, so you've got to wait. Otherwise, I've been caught out, and when I used to work in ICU, I've been trying to lower the side hypertensive patients blood pressure and I gave way too much hydralazine because mm. I only waited a few minutes mm. I was quite junior and uh, yeah, I got burnt so mm. sometimes uh, it makes patients feel a bit sick 
So I give some mm. antiemetic often when I give the first dose of hydralazine. Yeah, and droperidol is a good one, I mm. think, because it lowers your blood pressure a bit. So that's mm. a good antiemetic in a hypertensive patients. Yeah. Um, good. Okay, so these patients will often be on magnesium already, um, but let's say they weren't and the obstetricians have asked you to start the magnesium, what sort of doses are we giving for prophylaxis for um, eclampsia? I think it's four grams. Yeah, so it's a four gram loading dose. Yep. Um, I guess everybody has different regimens mm. for that. I think it's over half an hour uh, here. Is that right? 20 minutes. 20 minutes, minutes. yep. yep. And, uh, and then usually they get a gram an hour, don't they? That's, That's correct. correct. Um, I think you're supposed to... Uh, adjust or be cautious in renal impairment which they can obviously develop Mm -hmm. and you do levels and keep checking their reflexes Mm. yeah and i think there's a multiple choice question loss of patellar reflexes around 3.5 to four millimoles we have had a few cases um of spectacular spectacularly overdosed magnesium um, patients here renal failure uh, no, that was when the, they used to come and the magnesium used to be provided in 500 mil bags, okay. which is now manufacturers don't make that anymore. So right. the patient accidentally got that during, mm. during the eclamptic seizure and okay. had a cardiorespiratory arrest. So mm. now they only come in 100 mil bags, so that should be unlikely to occur. Mm. It adds a degree of safety. Yep. yep. So it's eight grams of bags, isn't it? Yeah, that's know. right, I think. Yes. Yep, yep that's correct. Um, good. Okay, so... Let's say your spinal has failed um, or, you know, your platelets are 54 and you've decided that um, general anaesthetic is now indicated. How are you going to perform this in this patient? Do you want to do it, Graham? Oh, to perform the general anaesthetic. Mm. Call on sick? Yeah. (laughs) Find a friend. Find a friend. No, firstly, I'd like to have the blood pressure down to around those numbers, one. 150 on 100 mm-hmm. yep. millimetres of mercury. I usually have multiple agents to blunt the uh, laryngoscopy re- or reflexes, mm-hmm. responses to laryngoscopy, uh, and they include magnesium, lignocaine, an opiate, opioid, yep. uh, and an appropriate induction agent dose. Okay. And I warn the paediatrician that the uh, neonate will be affected by that. Mm. Yep. Just because this is a viva and um, I'm going to make you commit to drugs and doses, yep. what exactly would, would you... you, would you so um, magnesium, 30 milligrams per kilogram, lignocaine, a milligram per kilogram, alfentanyl, now I'm lost. I can't remember the doses. Thirty milligrams, thirty mics, yep. thirty milligrams per kilogram. Yep. Two ampules. Two amps. Yeah. Yep. Lovely standard. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, whatever two, two ampules divided by their weight yeah. is yeah. in micrograms. Yeah. 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 And uh, and thiopentone or propofol. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't use thiopentone. No. Fine. Yep. Good. Okay. I agree. So yeah. So um, I just step back. Yeah. So mm. what? Just to clarify, like. Uh, clarify that what we're trying to avoid is a uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, um, and there have been case reports in the UK, but also around the world, mm. where people have intubated them, and you know the hypertensive response to laryngoscopy has caused a severe hypertensive um, crisis, leading to intracerebral hemorrhage. Mm. So that's what we're trying to avoid. So mortality in preeclampsia decreased when the uh, approach to managing the patients 
turned to more stabilisation pre-emergency mm. caesarean section. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And that's why they advocate for controlling the blood pressure before. Um, what about yeah. the airway? Are there any concerns? The airway can be edematous. Mm. Yep. Um, obviously, if there's uh, issues with thrombocytopenia, the airway can bleed. Mm. Uh, patients unlikely to be fasted. Yep, so those are all issues. Mm. So a good airway examination, and, and if you're concerned about the airway, then that mm. would push me more into back into trying to do a spinal. Yeah. Obviously, in invivers, sometimes you're not allowed to do. Well, you try to do things like spinals, and you and they fail. So mm. if the examiner is trying to get you uh, to do a GA to find out how you would do it, then you know let them. Mm. Just going back to neuraxials, um, if they had an epidural in situ, say for analgesia, which we would probably advocate for an early epidural in this situation, mm-hmm. um, would you top it up with local... Um, oh, with absolutely. I'd yeah. be very careful. I'd usually use a, uh, a mixture that has no adrenaline in it. Yeah. So yeah. I talk about that, but yeah. I've talked to various people and lots of people have different opinions. Mm. So it's hard to know. But you yeah, so that's right. So you can just use something like levobupivacaine or... Repivacaine or bupivacaine. Yep. Uh, but I have some very respected people who I've asked this question have said they just use lignocaine with adrenaline. Mm. Um, I know there, I guess a, there is a, a case report of a patient yeah. having a clamptic seizure following administration of the uh, lignocaine adrenaline combination. Yeah. 2% lignocaine with 1 in 80,000 adrenaline. But uh, So that is certainly something to worry about. Mm. Well, I guess. A, I guess if you're worried, there is a potential for all epidural catheters to be intravenous or or just systemic absorption, isn't there? So it's definitely something to worry about. Mm. And if you're not in a hurry, why don't you just use the slow-racking stuff? Yep. Sure, yeah. Um, Let's say you've successfully... If you're not in a hurry and you've got an art line in, you get a nice tram track, but it just takes a while. Yeah. In terms of blood pressure control, as you um, establish the block yeah, using sure. the epidural. Yeah. Yeah. So I would actually put in seventy-five mics of clonidine down the epidural. I would put in, yeah, seventy-five mics of fentanyl down the epidural, and then if the blood pressure is pretty stable, I might. I'd probably use the cannon adrenaline if I if I was happy that they were stable. But if they were really symptomatic and there was blood pressure out of control, I probably would, like you say, uh, use. Um, I think we've only really got bupivacaine, but I don't even know if we... Oh, we've got repivacaine. Yeah. We've got repivacaine. I probably use repivacaine. Mm. Um, 0.75. Or straight lignocaine, or that? Yep. Mm. Yeah. Um, That's fairly short-acting, though. So I would probably... Yeah, I don't know if I'd use straight lignocaine. Okay. <coughs> um, but you wouldn't be criticised for using lignocaine with adrenaline as long as you monitored the response. Yeah, I don't think you can. Not if, Well, I, I don't think you can because I've heard, yeah. heard some very pretty experienced professors of obstetric anesthesia say that's mm-hmm. what they normally use. Mm. And in fact, that's what we have taught here in our yep. Chaka's Guide. So as long as you monitor the Usually if you, really if you do what you normally do, you, you're safe. Mm. If you start mm. doing things that you're not familiar with, you start getting, um, you, can, you can run into trouble because you're not used to doing it. Are there any oxytocics you would avoid? Yep. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably not what the examiner is um, l- looking for when you when you answer them. <laughs> You're not wrong, like I suppose. <laughs> Shall we name them? Yes, yeah, yeah. Erg- ergometrin. Yeah. yeah. What about misoprostol? If they wanted to give some misoprostol, mm. I don't think it's a contraindication to that, is it? 
think it can cause some hypertension as well. Yep. So, yeah. so it's there's not much evidence that it's a great oxytocin, uh, uterotonic after delivery anyway. So mm. um, discourage them. Yeah. Um, so certainly the oxytocin is probably the way to go. Um, but obviously... How yeah. are you going to give that? Yeah. yeah, cautiously. Yes. Would you give it in a sort of a, a less dilute? Yes. Next, <laughs> <laughs> next a more time concentrated I form. form. Next time I set my part to exam, I want Laura to examine me because she pretty much tells you the answer in the question, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, so traditionally we give um, 40 units and 500 mils if we're giving an oxytocin infusion, but a lot of people were trying to avoid fluid overload because these patients are obviously prone to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, can get pulmonary edema. Mm-hmm. So we try to minimise the amount of crystal they get. Um, so, so a lot of people will put the 40 units of oxytocin in 50 mils and run it through a syringe driver mm-hmm. to try and decrease the amount of fluid they get. So just to mention a bit about yeah, acute pulmonary edema, um, often occurs obviously post-delivery, um, and it's the second highest cause of death related to um, preeclampsia. Yep. Uh, it occurs in about 3%, so it is something to be vigilant of. So do you think, Laura, that we're... Uh, um, that would be a, like a likely um, crisis event in the viva, you know, managing pulmonary edema. So yep. we sh- highly likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a, a very good viva. I might mm. use that for a future one. Mm. No, definitely. And and I mean, management principles for that are very similar to the non-pregnant patient. Yeah, um, but certainly prevention is the best. Yeah, best treatment for it. Um, good. Okay. Um, can we just briefly mention what you would do in a eclamptic crisis? The first thing is um, usual uh, principles of managing um, a seizure, which are um, stop the fit, mm-hmm. give oxygen, um, clear the airway, recover them in an appropriate uh, manner, yep. and uh, then usually treat with magnesium, mm. and they load usually with eight grams yeah, that's right. of uh, magnesium. So it's not usually, you don't give benzos or a propofol usually, they're usually self-limiting seizures. Mm. But you do give magnesium. So I, I think I've read four, four grams, Graham, but you know, if repeated, two grams. Um, but like you say, when you want to stop the fit, probably by the time you've drawn that up, it will have stopped itself. Mm. Yep. Um, and if it hasn't, then you, you're probably concerned yeah, about right. other causes of the fit. Aren't yeah, you? Like, or, or maybe a complication of the fit, like intracerebral mm-hmm. hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Or um, this is going off topic a little bit. Well, what are the um, most common causes of seizures in pregnant women? Uh, seizure disorder. Yeah, so the most common cause is actually epilepsy, isn't it? Mm. As they stop taking the tablets. So we see quite a few seizures in in uh, our hospital here, but not that many are eclampsia. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you think we haven't covered that's really important for the part tours to know? Um. So we are going to talk about. We're talking about. Um, Postoperative uh, care. Uh, I'm, I'm so, so obviously we're worried a lot about their kidneys. What, there's a common thing that we should, well, there's some common things that we should be careful about mm. postoperatively. They've had a cesarean. Yep. So avoid any renal or nephrotoxic drugs. Yeah. Which and usually the common ones are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a little bit of contention about drugs like medications like tramadol mm-hmm. because they are said to lower the seizure threshold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've I've heard people argue either way, but I personally have no problem prescribing it because I think their seizure is a vascular um, cause, not a um, neurotransmitter problem. So, yes. um, can and, and they're not all that, yeah. Mm. And, and also, the analgesia can be a bit of an issue with them because mm. they're not getting non-steroidals, uh, for example. So, 
so they're and they're, um, they're going to have some pain. So you know, you don't want to avoid things that you don't have to avoid. Mm. How how would you treat that pain? What sort of management strategy would you have for these patients normally then? If they've had a neuraxial, obviously some long acting opioids good. So morphine, either epidural or intrathecal, if if, if you can. Um, yep. How much morphine would you put in? Yeah, Making I just commit, use, sorry, it's that's right. I'm yeah. just so yeah. usually I'll just use what I normally use for cesarean. So 100 mics of intrathecal okay. morphine mm-hmm. and um, my two and a half milligrams of epidural morphine. Yep, and then you would take the epidural out presumably. I would, then, yeah, I yep. probably wouldn't leave it in. So unless uh, sometimes I might leave it in for the first hour or two in recovery, just mm-hmm. in case they needed some further um, TLC or they had some bleeding or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't leave it in um, much longer than that because that. The platelets can drop, I guess, is the, is the point that I need to emphasise. Mm. And then you get into trouble about when am I going to take the epidural out. Mm. If, say, for example, their platelets are 110 when you put it in and then you discover the next day when you do the pain round... 25. They're 22, 22 mm. what are you going to do? Yeah. What would you do? I'd probably just take it out. Mm-hmm. But some people... some or? people, Yeah, well, that's a debate, you know. Mm-hmm. There platelets can cause um, transfusion reactions and sepsis and all sorts of other things, so it gets tricky. Mm. Mm. You could um, cause harm when nothing bad would have happened if you'd just taken it out. Mm. It's better to avoid that situation in the first place. Yeah. Take it out in the context of the patient. I mean, if the patient's yep. comfortable, if the patient's uh, not bleeding, you could discuss it with a haematologist, but yep. mm. take it out. Yeah. Make sure there's nothing else wrong with their hematological system, yep. even stasis. Clotting, yeah. And do you think this patient can go to the ward? No. no. I'd like the patient to be cared for in a high-dependency unit, mm. yeah, an so ICU. Yeah, so usually they're going to be given 24 hours of magnesium therapy yep. mm. um, and they need very close management of their blood pressure. Obviously, if it spikes, they're usually given PRN antihypertensives, which mm-hmm. most commonly appear in this hospital using nifedipine mm-hmm. uh, orally. Um, but also you can use those intravenous drugs that we talked about earlier. Um, they're often placed on uh, regular... Uh, Libidolol or um, sometimes methyldopa. Methyldopa is more sort of when they are pregnant, not mm. whereas post-op, um, it's probably used less often. Mm-hmm. Good. <coughs> um, I was just. This is a good question, actually, that I'm not 100 percent sure. About. So, is there any reason why we can't like use um, traditional things like um, angiotensin two inhibitors and ACE inhibitors post-op because they're not pregnant anymore? Do you know? Well, Graham? I guess breastfeeding. Uh, is relevant and yeah, so it true. influences some of the um, safety issues with regards to uh, the drugs to choose yeah. dep- I don't, I depending don't see, upon I don't see anyone doing it very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have seen someone change it to enalapril. Right. Yeah. Um, not in this hospital, but I have seen that done by obstetrics, but I don't know the uh, evidence behind that. Yeah. And then this is, this is another one throughout there. What about fruzamide? Seems to be a reluctance to use fruzamide in pregnant people, but. Um, not sure. I don't think there's any evidence for against mm. it, is there? Uh, yeah, I think there's debate as to whether what sort of renal failure you're going to treat. So if they're oliguric, then um, you know pushing fluids to treat oliguria is not recommended. Yep. Um, but pushing fluids to treat <coughs> renal failure, for example, rising creatinine is, yep. um, and the push-pull method, obviously, with frizomide and fluids, is debatable. Yeah, and mm. so. So generally, my observation anyway is that a lot of these patients are really edematous, but unless they've actually compromised with a you know, pulmonary or respiratory edema, they just try and observe them and they will diarrhoeze themselves as they get better. Mm. But if they get pulmonary edema, then they're usually given some mm. yeah. um, 
some diuretic, That's right. some, which is small doses of frismide. So the key really is monitoring respiratory and renal function, isn't yep. it? Um, as opposed to treating uh, the aesthetic appearance of. Yep. Um, Watch the electrolytes. Yep. They can go, uh, well, certainly magnesium, potassium can be elevated in those ca- pa- patients who are oliguric. Mm. Yep. Um, should we discuss briefly how you would treat um, magnesium toxicity? Okay. S- supportive care, basically. Yeah. So yeah. Most my my yeah. understanding is that uh, obviously magnesium is cleared renally and uh, for patients who've been inadvertently given excessive magnesium, they need forced diuresis. Mm-hmm. For uh, the the patient, for example, who's unwell with oliguria, they need supportive care. Mm. Yeah, the major problem is when the levels get high, it's neuromuscular blockade, so respiratory compromise. Um, yeah. Yep. And then I think, I, I can't remember, there is a table with the different um, plasma levels, but obviously we don't usually measure them. We just mm-hmm. um, uh, And then once it gets really high, I guess there is a chance of arrhythmias as well. Mm. Yep. We, I think the patient that we had, which had a perim- who had a perimortem caesarean, had both of those. Yep. I think respiratory paralysis around 8 millimoles per yep. litre. Yep. And I think if we're worried about arrhythmias as well, we'd um, probably give some calcium yeah, as well. Yeah, so calcium is, um, has been advocated. I don't think I've... Yeah, I wasn't involved that. in that case, and I don't think... I, I remember hearing about... They two, had two cases yeah. where bo- both patients remained intubated, ventilated, and had forced diuresis, yeah. but no um, specific management for arrhythmias. Yeah, so I think it's fairly safe in that respect. Uh, yeah. so Did I they have renal failure? Sorry, or? No, no, they didn't. They got saline plus uh, frisamide. Mm. I suppose if they do have renal failure and they are becoming mm. toxic as well, then no dialysis as well. Exactly. So yep. Um, I just wanted to mention the MAGPIE trial as well briefly. That often gets examined quite um, frequently, especially in multiple choice questions. Right. Um, so we see it was a very big study. Um, the main multiple choice question that gets asked is the number needed to treat, um, which it's I've got quite here. high, isn't it? It is high, um, and it was you know the study was in a lot of developing countries as well. Can you just remind us as what yeah, what, so what was the study studying? I believe so it was magnesium a uh, preventing eclamptic seizures. Yep. And who was the who was included? What was the inclusion it was criteria? Developing and developed countries. Um, Women with severe preeclampsia. Yep. Yeah. So you had to have severe preeclampsia. Yep. Yes. And the number needed to treat was around fifty to sixty, I believe. Yep. Yeah. So my observation is that not all patients with preeclampsia get put on magnesium, and um, there's a little bit of interpretation of who should and shouldn't. Mm. But most of the time, if they've got neurological uh, symptoms, features. Mm the obstetric team are more likely to then place them on magnesium. Mm. Is that what you... Yes. Yeah, or severe, of severe um, hypertension. Yeah. I think the issue with the MAGPIE trial was that the patients from the non-developing world, that is usually the Australian type or New Zealand setting, Mm. they needed a much higher number needed to treat. It was over 300. Mm. Yep. So that... And talking about magnesium toxicity and how that can go wrong, I suppose mm. you know, there is there is obviously a, um, a risk-benefit analysis that needs to... Yeah, and they, they need to be admitted to high-dependency areas. Mm-hmm. They need, you know, yeah, that's correct. But having said that, you know, we have seen some very, very sick mm. patients with preeclampsia for whom magnesium's been helpful. Yeah. Oh, it's very good. It's a very good um, yeah. therapy. Yeah. 
And sometimes it gets a bit confused because the neonatologists sometimes request magnesium to be administered to the patients for neuroprotective purposes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's right. So if you if you work in a hospital where you have fetuses that are unlikely to be delivered early, uh, it's usually I think it's what less than thirty weeks or so, mm-hmm. twenty eight thirty weeks seems to be there around when they do. It. There's there's some evidence. I don't know how strong it is that um, maybe giving the mother some magnesium will help. Presumably, some of that's transferred to the fetus will somehow be neuroprotective to the fetus when they're born prematurely and prevent um, um, well they have cerebral hemorrhage as well don't they so yeah. prevent that from occurring so sometimes we have women who don't have preeclampsia who come to theatre uh, or we have to you know, look after on labor ward who are getting magnesium so if they've got preeclampsia and they've got a preterm fetus that's another good reason to mm. to give it you might lower your threshold for, for a trans. Um, prescribing magnesium, mm. but you don't prescribe more magnesium in instances. Still the same. No, just the same. Yep. They still use the same protocol and infusion. I think. Yep. yep. Well, actually, they, often they just give the loading dose and they don't give the infusion, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Excellent. I was trying to work out why I got that uh, dose of magnesium wrong, but I think it's the IM dose, okay. the eight grams in the event of a. I just thought it, you were checking your Facebook. It clamped it. So, no, no, no. He's doing both. posting about I'm thinking magnesium. back to my uh, aeromedical retrieval days, Yeah, giving if advice I, over the phone. If only you had Twitter then. Yes, <laughs> if only. Although there's not a good um, phone coverage out in the bush. Okay, well, you've both you, passed with flying colours. Have you got an anecdote from um, out, out way back? Oh, I've got many. Any? <laughs> Any, anyone who's like you know done something crazy that you've yeah, turned up in the, in the aeroplane to retrieve. Oh, I once picked up a guy on um, Easter Sunday, and uh, this is an eclampsia. He, no, he was, he, a guy. <laughs> he was unconscious, <laughs> but uh, after I threatened him with uh, putting a, a plastic tube through his vocal cords and gave him some um, trapezius squeezes, he, he bounced back to life. And <laughs> He'd been on a combination of uh, alcohol amphetamines for about two or three days prior to having um, some alprazolam from his friends, uh, which obviously made him comatose for a little while. <laughs> it's a good anecdote. I was, I was what a waste of money. Of, I was sort of fishing for a preeclampsia anecdote, but that's all right. I will, we'll take that. Oh, look, <laughs> it was in Graham's differential because he loves eclampsia so much. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much for joining me, Bo. <laughs> Resurrection of the dead. <laughs> You've been listening to the Obstetric Anesthesia Basics podcast series, a short podcast series designed for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. These discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges and issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anesthesia. However, there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anesthesia. Equipment, drugs, facilities, protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals geographical locations and time. You should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions. Thank you for listening.